Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 963. To begin today's show, Eric Longenhagen welcomes Tess Taruskin from our very own prospect team to talk about Prospects Week at Fangraphs.com. The pair discussed a challenge and processes of putting together the top 100 list and how their social media tends to blow up around this time of year as a result. We also hear about things like Tessa's background and how she came to Fangraphs, the fascinating piece she wrote on the catching prospect landscape and where it is going, and why evaluators must resist constantly tinkering and ranking players. It's something that I don't want us to make a habit of because I won't stop doing it then, right? Like, Right, totally. Like, it, it's easy to just say every day it changes. Right? right, like, I can't have Oreos in the house for the same reason that we can't <laughs> allow ourselves to do this. Like, yeah. I can't regulate. You'll just so, eat a whole box of Kyle Harrison's. <laughs> right. After that, David Lorelow welcomes Tom Henninger, baseball writer and author of the book The Pride of Minnesota, The Twins in the Turbulent 1960s. David and Tom talk about all kinds of sports and culture from the time, with anecdotes about Jim Cott's injury in 1967, Minnesota getting NHL and NBA franchises in the same year, Muhammad Ali and the Vietnam War, and other civil rights events of the time. We also get stories about Mudcat Grant, Dean Chance, Bill Masterton, George Mikan, and how much the Twins ran wild on the base paths under the management of Billy Martin. Frank Quillacy, who managed the, the Twins later and was a player on that team and also stole home that season, said Billy Mart would just pull the weirdest stunts to create runs, and they usually involved running. And uh, that year, Quillacy, Carew, and Cesar Tovar all stole home, and actually Tovar and Carew stole home in the same inning in one game. And, the, and that particular day, Carew also stole three bases in an inning, which tied a major league record. And that was kind of how things went that year. Uh, most people could run freely, and even Harmon Killebrew stole eight bases that summer. But before we get to these segments, I must issue my weekly reminder to check out the Fangraphs.com shop. It is the best place to not only get your merch, but you can also score an ad-free membership for yourself or as a gift for a pal. And that is the best way to browse the site and to support the site, helping us to keep doing everything we do. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hello, Fangraphs Audio listeners. This is lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen coming to you on a rainy Wednesday afternoon in Tempe, Arizona. We just got done chatting about the top 100 list over at the site, and I'm joined in the post-chat glow by Tess Taruskin. What's going on, Tess? Hello, hello. Good to talk to you out loud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's going to be... I don't know. How how are you feeling on on this day? This is your first time going through this experience. Yeah, and quite an experience it's been. <laughs> you know, it's been a lot of work. So I, I kind of have that like finals week haze uh. that I'm kind of like working through. That is combined with like just more like flurry of uh, Twitter notifications than I'm used to being someone who's like afraid of Twitter. But yeah, I mean, overall, it's been really exciting to sort of see how the sausage is made and be a part of that sausage making process. <laughs> yeah, the... Uh... It's totally unrelated to anything that we're going to talk about, but yeah, I just I share the weird social media. Like all of a sudden, the notifications explode in a way that even I can't ignore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's just like, oh, did did I do something? Or right, right. Oh no, it's just the top one hundred <laughs> came out today. But yeah, so what time did you go to sleep last night? Uh, I think I was able to get in bed by midnight. Okay, that's pretty good. Yeah. That is much better. 
than has typically been the case on the night before the the top 100 gets released it definitely helps that i'm on the west coast now so i am i do have like that two-hour buffer compared to when i was in chicago but yeah it's definitely i I wasn't pulling the same kind of all-nighters that i was uh maybe expecting to (laughs) so speaking of chicago this is your first time on fangraphs audio Mm -hmm. You've been at the site for about a year now as a contributor. Mm -hmm. Can you tell our listeners what your background is, how you came to write at Fangraphs? Sure. So I grew up in the Bay Area here and then lived in Chicago for 11 years that ended just last at the end of last year. Uh, But while I was in Chicago, I went and got a master's in um, computing and digital media, which is basically just well, for my intent and purpose was basically just a, a master's in video editing and understanding how how that all worked. And that kind of happened at the same time that I was playing a lot of slow pitch softball <laughs> in the Chicago scene. And one of my uh, one of my teammates there was on his own sort of up and coming trajectory to become what he is now, which is an area scout. But at the time was still paying his dues at the at you know getting publications here and there. And he brought me into the fold just in terms of introducing the concept of this kind of a career path and was nice enough to put me in touch with you, Eric, and and kind of pick your brain about the whole thing. And then it just sort of evolved from there. I guess you could probably illuminate me a little more about how I ended up at Fangraphs, but, <laughs> but it was, well, it was you know, one of those things where it seemed like a good fit from my perspective. Obviously, it was a little bit delayed due to the world turning upside down a couple years ago, but I have you know, just been waiting in the wings and excited to get my get my shot. <laughs> well, it's in a weird way, the pandemic was not, I mean, it wasn't to anyone's benefit, but right. you and I, there was nothing really going on baseball-wise, and it allowed us the opportunity at that time to spend just a lot of time on the phone with one another talking baseball stuff. Totally. And doing some like the types of things that I will do in the background with the handful of people who I've tried to mentor and get jobs with baseball teams to this point, same type Mm -hmm. of stuff, which as you can maybe tell now as like the gears of the clock are turning again, I maybe don't have as much time to do, (laughs) uh, you know, if there's not a pandemic. Right. So there were definitely like at that time, a couple of people Mm -hmm. who, yeah, like were just, I was just talking to every week. You were definitely one of them at the Mm -hmm. recommendation of our mutual scout friend, Mm -hmm. mutual friend scout. (laughs) (laughs) one of those. (laughs) And yeah, you had excellent feel and were like great to be on the phone with and were learning very fast and had skills that complemented some of the stuff that we are trying to do at the site. Somehow you did not know Kevin because Kevin should get out of the house more. But uh, (laughs) even though you guys were both in Chicago, like wasn't Kevin wasn't the connection here. It was somebody else. Mm -hmm. And so yeah, now we're off and running and at a time when you have moved to a part of the country where there is maybe a little bit of geographic overlap in terms of like the Pac-12 piece of it. But like, yeah, you're Mm going to be doing West Coast amateur coverage here for the next several months. What are some of the places that you anticipate you'll be hitting up here this spring as we do draft coverage? Well, I'm definitely going to try and camp out at both Cal and uh, Stanford, being that they're both within a couple hours of me right now. Pending traffic, that could be four hours, who knows? <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that being able to see the guys who are kind of making making early amateur waves there, your Dylan Beavers is and your Brock's <laughs> Brock's Jones. <laughs> your Brock's Jones. 
those it'll be it'll be an experience for me that I haven't yet had because of the pandemic. Last year, I just wasn't able to go and see college live, despite many unanswered emails to Midwestern colleges that I just couldn't get access to. So being able to go see that this year is going to be really exciting. And then, um, you know, there's just this flurry of uh, minor league teams within my reach here, too. So I'll be busy. (laughs) Yeah, the Brock Jones evaluation piece of the spring for you is going to be big. Yeah. I know it's on the rolling sheet somewhere when they are, I don't even know if they're at ASU. I think they play at U of A. And I think that like I have a Sophie's choice that weekend where like I will either be seeing Stanford in Tucson or like the Boris stuff maybe here in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know that I'm going to be able to hunker down on Brock Jones. Yeah. Who's hit tool. I'm kind of skeptical of. Yeah. It looks like they're there at the same time as that Boris tournament. Okay. Yeah. Looking at their schedule. So yeah, I will cover that for you. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and yeah, like the, the pandemic, the 2020 and 2021 college seasons, especially in the Midwest, there's a narrow window between when like we were all vaccinated and Mm -hmm. the rate at which schools were opening up media availability, right? Like it's not Mm -hmm. like Major League Baseball. It's just sort of, it is very school to school. Right. Totally. Minor league team to minor league team, backfield to backfield, what their procedures are ultimately. Uh, It's not like there's a regulative body that applies to minor league baseball media, the BBWAA does not deal with any of that stuff. Right. So yeah, our our access was highly variable, which made things very difficult mm-hmm. and may continue to make things difficult. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So you're coming down here in a couple of weeks to hit the backfields. I'll mention this before we talk about some of the other prospect week content that we that we did, including the hundred. Looking at the minor league schedules, which by the way, folks listening to this, the minor league part of the schedule is unchanged. Certainly there are prospects and guys who will be optioned and be in the minors who are on 40-man rosters mm-hmm. who won't be doing minor league spring training. But like the 19-year-old who's not on a 40-man, like he's just reporting to minor league spring training in the next couple of weeks if he hasn't already. So right. the schedules for the games tend to start in the middle of March we still have about half of the prospect lists to roll out. And so the back end of the list tends to include live looks from mm-hmm. uh, minor league spring training here in Arizona and then hopefully in Florida, which is, you know, <laughs> there are reasons we haven't been to Florida for the last couple of years too. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I think that we're going to, while you're here, I think we're going to be doing the Dodgers and mm-hmm. that group of teams. We'll have to talk about it. Cleveland and Cincinnati are only playing each other during minor league spring training every day. (laughs) Cleveland and Cincinnati are just going to play one another, which is wild. And I assume if I were a 21-year-old baseball player, it would be very boring. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So when you were working on the 100, what were some of the things that stood out to you about the process? And what were some of the ways you felt the the things that you had learned about the orgs you've been working on mm-hmm. intersected with some of the bigger process-oriented stuff that we were trying to do when we were wrangling the universal top 100 list. Right. Well, I think that like for me, it was interesting given you and Kevin, your collective experience, just listening to you two sort of nitpick on guys tool by tool to determine the, the ordinal rankings within an, a future value tier was really interesting just to see and and kind of can be reflected in the in the graphs that were added to the the list this year to sort of show the difference between the shapes of their trajectories or possible possible outcomes really cool for uh for me to just sort of rethink how 
or you know recalibrate how I'm thinking about these prospects as they relate to each other, like you said, when you're meshing together these lists. And then even more so, it kind of put into perspective how quickly things can shift and change. And when we we had to discuss whether or not we wanted to keep the overall top 100 internally consistent with how we'd already ranked guys within their own orgs and had to make some decisions about not doing that. And the uh, arguments for and against what that says about the concept of future value or whatever, how quickly it can change based on, um, you know, just stewing on something a little longer was really illuminating. And it made me really kind of think about that on my own when I was, as I approach making these kinds of, you know, judgment calls within an org, specifically because I had worked on the Giants list, the the flip-flop of Kyle Harrison and Patrick Bailey in terms of their their relative ranking was interesting, but also like conceivable. So the, that, that that could happen and how that could happen gave me a different perspective on on the list in general and how, how fluid it all is and how these rankings rightly are constantly changing and evolving. Yeah, it was an interesting situation. It's the only time that we've done that. Mm -hmm. And some of that is just because when you have more people working on a thing like this, and then it comes time for everyone to suddenly source on the same thing, the volume of opinions that you get literally triples, right? So Yeah, yeah, like Patrick Bailey and Kyle Harrison were ranked in that order on the Giants list a couple months ago, mm-hmm. but when we all started drilling down on the way the hundred would line up, like there was just overwhelming consensus as we we're passing the list around baseball that Harrison's ceiling just puts him closer to that 50-55 line. He is just more right. likely to move into a tier of like true high-end impact than Patrick Bailey, who is a fine, he's a really good hitting catcher, right? Like mm-hmm. he's, there's certainty in Patrick Bailey mm-hmm. at a position where there's like no offensive performance. Right. And then typically with the pitchers who are young as Kyle Harrison, it is just a terrible idea to stuff them quite that high. Right. But in Mick Abel's case and then in Kyle Harrison's case, the way that their stuff is so switched on, especially Harrison, just the way the pitch mix has evolved totally. Mm-hmm. I like Kyle Harrison in high school a lot, mm-hmm. but not. I did not think that it would have become this right. so fast. And right. I was also overvaluing the backspinning fastballs relative to mm-hmm. the approach angle at that time. And so Harrison's like a lower slot guy. Right. It means that his fastball doesn't backspin and it doesn't have like great shape, but the angle of it. Yeah, makes it seem like it does. Right. It still yeah. has that top of zone utility. Right. And I think you could argue the guys who have that lower slot then have the two seam sinker, like that's in their back pocket then. Mm-hmm. Whereas the over the top guys don't have that as much. Yeah. I also think with, uh, with Bailey specifically, when you're looking at him within the Giants organization, it's almost impossible to divorce your opinion of him from your opinion of Joey Bart. Like you have to kind of like compare those two. And then, and in our case, we sort of were up or high on his back half of the season. He just absolutely killed it at the end of the season. And that just seemed enough to put, to give him the bump over, over Bart. And then when you're thinking about meshing those overall within the org, it still seemed to make sense to keep Patrick Bailey as high as he was and be more, more uh, cautious about giving Harrison that same bump until we sort of had to, you know, more directly compare the two of them when comparing them more objectively overall. 
it's something that I don't want us to make a habit of because I won't stop doing it then, right? Like, Right, totally. Like it, it's easy to just say every day it changes. Right? right, like I can't have Oreos in the house for the same reason that we can't <laughs> allow ourselves to do this. Like yeah. I can't regulate. You'll just so, eat a whole box of Kyle Harrison's. <laughs> right. So a recent example of this is I went to watch junior college guys play at the Cubs place. There's like a junior college tournament there are a couple of them at the very beginning of the junior college season, typically towards the end of January. Mm-hmm. And they often take place on a big league team's backfields because then you can have like two, three games going at a time. Mm-hmm. You can have these six, eight team junior college tournaments and everyone gets seen and it's a nice thing. Mm-hmm. So I'm there watching these Juco guys and the Cubs minor leaguers who are here for like a mini camp before minor league spring training walk over to the fourth backfield that is unoccupied and I'm looking over there and it's, you know, there's Brennan Davis, there's Christian Hernandez and there's Ed Howard and there's Owen Casey, uh, Narciso Crook, mm-hmm. <laughs> who's a blast to be around. It turns out, uh, cool, was also there. Cool. And then there's Pete Crow Armstrong and I watch Pete Crow Armstrong swing and I go, Oh, Pete Crow Armstrong has changed his swing mm-hmm. and boy, oh boy, do I think there's a chance that Pete Crow Armstrong explodes now because of the way this swing works relative to his high school swing. And the right. first thing I thought about was, could I just go home right now and just put a 45 plus now on Pete Crow Armstrong, move him to wherever that is appropriate on the Cubs list and just say like, hey, I watched this guy take BP. His swing is different now. He's a chance to blow up rather than just be Jackie Bradley Jr., which again is a good player, but like, right, right. that's what a 45 is. Mm-hmm. Like, he has a chance to really explode. This guy's going to catch top side velocity now, but I just couldn't. I was just like, what am I really going to do? Every time I'm at a field, I'm just going to want to go home and do this. Right. And once all the lists are done, fine. Like, that's part of the point of the board is to be able to do that. Yeah. But I got to, we got to think about the Braves and the Mets and stuff first. Right, right. But yeah, sure. <laughs> but you got to be able to make those like slight changes in your read on someone without biting the bullet and doing it on the whole, on the board, you know, like you have right. to be able to accumulate enough of those to, to warrant making a change that doesn't, that isn't coming from just like a wide consensus of outside opinions. Let's say we were going to continue to do this, who are some of the guys who, as we were talking about them during the top 100 process, would you bet our opinions might change or seem more volatile? Like when we arrive at the Cardinals list or the Marlins list mm-hmm. or the Padres list, who are some of the names who struck you as guys whose opinions are like their projection rather is more amorphous just based on like the tone of our collective discussions? I think that like a lot of the Nationals pitchers could be really kind of like, uh, especially like Cavalli versus Henry or something like that, where they both have similar concerns and similar, well, they, they both did well last year, I'll say, but like, but they, they did well in different ways and over different spans. So giving, given more time to really like digest and think about where that puts them as far as their trajectory would may, you know, have an impact on how they're ranked between the two of them. That's a pretty good one. It is like what you said, Cole Henry. I think we have a very good idea of what Cole Henry is and mm-hmm. that he is likely to be that very soon, right. which is like a, a dynamite late inning reliever. Yeah, right. And that's that's what Cade Cavalli could end up being rather than what he's shooting to be. So it really depends on you know whether you think Cavalli can start or have more of a high leverage role than just a late inning guy. 
Right. And that is where the track record for Cavalli exactly. rounds him down. Right. 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 Where it's just like, this guy was hurt in college. This delivery is pretty violent about the head and shoulders. Mm-hmm. It's pretty balanced. Like, he's a really good athlete with a great body. Right. And there's balance in, like, the landing leg and everything. It's just in the head and the shoulders there is whack. And maybe right. it was because he was trying to throw 101 at the Futures game when I saw him. <laughs> that might have something to do with it. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> that adrenaline whack. But, uh, but yeah, that is, like... And then, I guess, Brady House in this mix, too. You could argue, like, we should just take the stick... Right. Over the guys who have, you know, relief risk slash injury risk, like right. every time. But mm-hmm. these totally. two arms are closer. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about your catcher's piece. Okay. What inspired you to write this excellent piece about our excellent crop of prospect <laughs> catchers? Well, the excellent crop of prospect catchers is the short answer. <laughs> I don't know. I think I'm probably like a bit of a sucker for a catcher just in general, just like when I played baseball, I was a catcher. And then when I played softball, I switched over to shortstop. So it's sort of like the captain of the infield kind of feel is just a, an element to a, an overall profile that is very intriguing to me. But moreover, I mean, really, like what I said in the piece is just that it's just such a weird time for there to be all these catchers yeah. coming up when we don't know what the catching position is going to look like over the next five, 10 years, or even this year. I mean, like there's at the minor league level, I'm just really curious to see what this, what the uh, automated boss and strike system is going to end up doing to the development of the guys who are in process and will be, will be playing with it in place. Yeah, I don't, it's hard to know. I guess as we continue to do the organizations based in Florida, we might start to come across some thoughts from industry people about what having the automated ball strike calling system in low A Southeast meant for catchers. Mm-hmm. We know that it had a pretty ridiculous impact on like strikeout and walk rates as in they were extremely high. Right. But yeah, it, the the way it might impact, the way catchers might be impacted right away here might be like a byproduct of the universal DH. And I think I've said this mm-hmm. before, but now if we have a universal DH, then the position on the field you are most likely to want to pinch hit for becomes your catcher just because right. catchers don't hit. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like it, at this, as it lies now, you know, any, basically any national league team that has a good catcher on their team basically has a DH on their team in a way that isn't going to continue to be the case when there's a universal DH for sure. But, but kind of hints at that same thing where that is where the power deficit can most be felt or, you know, the hit tool deficit can most be felt or a drastic improvement upon it would be most obvious. Yeah, so I guess this the the thing that I think will happen, maybe it won't happen immediately, but I think teams like the Diamondbacks and the Dodgers have sort of positioned themselves ahead of the curve in this regard. Like the fact that Dalton Varsho can play the outfield mm-hmm. means that you can carry uh, Carson Kelly's pretty good when he's healthy, but so maybe the Diamondbacks aren't a great example of this. Sure. But like if you have Austin Barnes on your team mm-hmm. and Will Smith both on your team who can catch right. and kind of do a little bit of other stuff, right. then like you have room to pinch hit for your lousy hitting catcher knowing that like, hey, Austin Barnes, like he's doing other stuff. He's mm-hmm. around to be the backup catcher. He's around. Sometimes he'll like pinch run because mm-hmm. he's not a bad – like there are just reasons to have guys like this around. Garrett Stubbs right. with the Phillies. Right. I mean even just the fact that the catching slash – secondary position isn't just catching slash first base anymore just that you can get more utility out of a catcher because of the type of catcher that's coming up 
just, you know, offers up just all these kind of crazy possibilities when you're throwing out the, some of the, you know, more taxing aspects of the catcher position. And not, I mean, you know, who, who's to say how it's actually going to be affected, but it could right. be anyway. I do think that what you said, like the, the idea that having three catchers on your roster, teams are, teams are platooning across the diamond more often anyway. Mm-hmm. So if, you know, it just presents avenues for deploying someone like Cooper Hummel mm-hmm. in a way that's just not only catching. And then, yeah, maybe there will be a benefit enjoyed by all the parties involved because you are taking a little bit of the load off of, you know, Buster Posey and Joe Maurer mm-hmm. during their prime. They're not just catching 130 times a year. Mm-hmm. They're catching 100 times a year and they're DHing or playing first base for a chunk of the time too, because you have the universal DH and you have you know multiple catchers on on your roster. I think the expanded rosters leave room for this too, right? And that people who are just like, why not just have two catchers? And like, are you really when your backup catchers in the game and your starting catcher has been hit for like, are you really at risk? Like, yeah, I think you are. I think <laughs> just watch, just pay attention to the beating that a catcher takes. Just watch yeah. where the foul balls go, right? Folks. Just like. like- yeah, or the balls in the dirt that don't go right into the chest protector are usually catching some flesh somewhere. Yeah. That's not not ideal for yeah, a long term just... career. I mean, Soderstrom, like Soderstrom, just that's one of the reasons why, like, it makes sense to move him out of the catcher's position is just to kind of keep his body away from those little things that'll just add up over time. Yeah, and I I saw him get clipped by a foul ball. It like hit his bicep just beneath mm-hmm. where his chest protector like was mm-hmm. and he screamed Ew. and I felt the entire like Grady Fuson and, and a bunch of the front office people are in the scout tower behind the backfield mm-hmm. and I just you just hear uh, like you hear them go oh no mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah you can just hear them all being like just put face. totally totally who can so, blame them like that's it's right. just so so rough and tumble back there. Like when's the last time you saw any game where there wasn't even just like a momentary pause while a catcher shook off his thumb or something, you know, like any game will have multiple of those. So how about the framing part of it? If, if automated balls and strikes cause that to cease to be a Mm -hmm. thing of value, obviously like the Jose Molina's of the world will no longer be big league catchers. Right. But what are some of the other ways you foresee it changing the things that teams are prioritizing at that position? Well, I think that like it makes the arm something that a defensive profile can really just be held up by. I think that, you know, someone like Corey Lee, who just has this insane arm, if he cannot have to worry about anything other than getting that ball to his throwing hand, uh, when a runner's on base, that makes the arm play up even right. higher. Yeah, why I mean, bother even, trying to make right. it look like a strike? Right, yeah. right. Even someone, even like, you know, Adley Rutschman for that matter. Like if he's no longer having to work around his big body, you know, to yeah. like, to get things that are not, I don't know. You know, if you're not, if, if your only concern is getting it to your throwing hand and not where the pitch is, where you're making the pitch look like it landed, it just gives you more versatility in terms of that arm playing up. How about left-handed throwing catchers if you can only care about throwing to the bases because Mm -hmm. like obviously being a left-handed throwing catcher you can sort of mirror in your mind's eye what it looks like Mm -hmm. for a right-handed throwing catcher to throw to like try to backpick a runner at first base right 
that is what it would look like for a left-handed catcher to try to throw out a base stealer at third at base. Third, right. Is there something about not having to frame anymore that makes that not as scary? Like it is really hard to get, you know, to like yeah. shift your body so that you're throwing to that side of the field mm-hmm. when you're left-handed. But mm-hmm. Maybe if you can cheat your way into doing it before you receive the baseball, like it becomes less yeah. of a problem. I don't know. Well, I just think that there's more, you know, there's more of a reason to, or like there's more justification towards trying to develop that than there is currently. That's for sure. Like there's just, it's just a non-starter as it exists now. But if there are ways that you could conceivably, we're getting into sort of like the hits blunt part, portion of this discussion, I think. But like, if there are ways that you can conceive of like reworking all catching fundamentals around that and the pitch framing is no longer a part of it at all like why not you know like why why wouldn't that be why would that still be a non-starter if that part of it is alleviated i think part of the challenge is that at some point as you work your way down the baseball ladder there just won't be an automated ball strike system. Like at what point would we expect college baseball to implement it? You kind of can't because even if you put it in at Vanderbilt, Mm -hmm. it may not be a viable option at Mercer. And it certainly isn't a high school or junior college thing. There's still like going to be a layer of baseball at which subjective strike zone exists and then suddenly doesn't anymore. Right. And so there's probably something related to that. I mean – or, you know, other way around as well. Like if, if uh, these guys in AAA now are getting used to the ABS and then get promoted, they'll some, suddenly have to start framing again. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I think that like it's too early to call it, obviously. And, and the, what it means long term is just going to have to do with how it's rolled out and if it's rolled out and on what time frame. It's just a strange time right now for catching prospects in that the skill sets that got them there aren't necessarily the ones that'll help them move up or continue right. on that pathway uh, in a way that's very structural. It's not just about like an evolution of the sport. It's about the rules changing, which is, or, you know, the this tech advancement, which is just not something that there's a whole lot of analogous situations you can draw upon from, from the sports history for. All right. So as we wrap here, we're going to go work on our picks the click yep. where we... Pick some guys who aren't in the hundred right now, but who we gut feel. Well, not just gut feel, but you know, like it's it's definitely a less rigorous. It's a more shoot from the hip process than like anything else we do. Basically, mm-hmm. who you got? Who are some of the names who you have in mind already? I mean, the obvious ones who just like just missed our missed the list this year, like Taj Bradley. I think I really like. <laughs> I th- I understand the concerns about him, but I think that like I want to sort of plant a flag in the fact okay. that I like him. <laughs> I think you were on Geloff too. I was. Yeah. I, he had such a nice season that I, I got to sort of check in on throughout the year last year. So, and I was never disappointed. And when I got to watch a game that he was in. So yeah, yeah. that's right. He was one of those guys where he was like kind of in my third, fourth round mix offhand. And then he was <laughs> really performing. And yeah, I think he was one of your targeted dudes last year and mm-hmm. he did have a fantastic fall yeah in my, in my looks uh at instructs cool and then i think also drew romo uh who's sort of in this catching vein yeah dylan dingler like all those catchers who are just sort of i don't know it's it's they're just right underneath someone like Corey. yeah in terms of you can't quite see it exactly how they get there yet but they definitely have you know foundationally there there's a lot to dream on there and then 
I threw on, ooh, I'm looking at the sheet now, and Kevin's in there starting to add his names. You, you want to know who he's added? He put P. Crow Armstrong in there. Hey. So I'm going to slash, I'm going to slash EL in the, in this little cell here right now. And he's going to lose his, his mind. <laughs> he's got Ty Madden in there. The righty from Texas who fell kind of unexpectedly on draft day to like the back of round one comp area. He's got Andrew mm-hmm. Painter in there. He's got Peyton Battenfield on there, which I will disagree with just because as a scouting director put it to me on the phone this week, when I brought Battenfield up, he was like, first of all, like you need to stop. And then why would the Rays have only traded like the deal that B- Battenfield was in was not indicative of him like being a 50, basically. Uh, mm-hmm. I've got Nick Lofton on here from the Royals, who I think okay. is going to move to the outfield uh, and who I did quite a bit. Uh-huh. And, but yeah, we were just starting to, f- to flesh this out and we were about to go do that in a more thorough way. Mm-hmm. So thank you for joining me, Tess. I, I hope to have you on and certainly you're welcome to explore this Fangraphs audio space <laughs> on your own as well. Uh, but thanks so much for all the work that you've been doing and for the help on this week's stuff. Thank you. This is a lot of fun. Well, listeners, thanks for joining us on another edition of Fangraphs Audio. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for producing. For Tess Taruskin, I'm Eric Longenhagen. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorela. We are ending Prospect Week with a podcast segment that actually has nothing to do with prospects, but it is with a guest that I've been hoping to have on for a while, which is Tom Henninger, longtime writer and editor for multiple publications, most recently Baseball Digest. Tom is also the author of two books, one on Tony Oliva and the other, which is titled The Pride of Minnesota, The Twins in the Turbulent 1960s. Tom, thanks for coming on to uh, Fangrass Audio. Oh, glad to join you, David. The book, your newest book, Tom, The Pride of Minnesota, would be a, a good read, and it is a very good read. If it was simply about the twins in the 1960s, but it is about far more than that. You address the whole cultural landscape of what I think is one of the most fascinating decades in, in U.S. history. You know, how would you describe the 1960s? Well, I, I can't, uh, you know, disagree with you on on the notion of how exciting it was. It was a great time to come of age. You know, you had the British invasion. You know, I plugged into the Beatles at a young age. Music changed dramatically. I was a teenager in the latter half of the decade, and um, you know, so much was going on: the space race, uh, the civil rights movement, uh, the war in Vietnam, which. You know, some of those things really got a lot of young people to plug into the to the larger world, and I was certainly one of those people. And I am not uh, quite old enough to have plugged in too much. I was around really for the 60s at a very young age. And we're going to talk about a lot of the things that you just brought up, but let's, let's start with uh, baseball. The Twins came over from the, uh, they used to be the Washington Senators, of course. Was it 1960 or 1961, I think they moved? 61. Mm-hmm. 61. What was uh, baseball in the Twin Cities like in the 1960s? Well, the, leading up to that time, we had two minor league teams in Minneapolis and St. Paul, and those were great rivalries. And then suddenly the Twins came and, uh, you know, it, it changed so much. Uh, my dad started taking me to games at a young age. Uh, the Twin Cities really plugged into the team. They certainly, and then they became good after a long you know, session of losses. Uh, you know, the Senators were dreadful for the, you know, most of the 40s and 50s. And uh, Minnesota fans benefited from this young team that was coming of age and finding their way. And it was a very exciting time to have baseball in the Twin Cities. 
And the the twins were very, very good. You quite probably or possibly would not have written this book had they had senator-like records. They went to the World Series in 1965. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, no, I think you're right. This book might have never happened. And, you know, it was a team I was touched by, and 65 was very special for me. Uh, my dad took me to the All-Star Game, which happened to be in Minnesota that year. And then he took me to Game 2 of the World Series. So I managed to see Sandy Koufax pitch twice that season, uh, you know, at a time where it was just unheard of to see a National League team if you were, you know, in Minnesota. And Koufax beat Jim Cott, brand new Hall of Famer, in that Game 7. Something that I learned reading the book, Tom, is that Cott actually hurt his elbow in what's, what was probably the biggest, the second biggest game of his career. Uh, yes, well, that would have been in 1967. The Twins were in Boston to play the Red Sox at Fenway. They came into the uh, two-game series for Saturday-Sunday with a game lead, had to win just one game, and uh, Cott was scheduled for game one of the series on Saturday, and he had been just wonderful. He had gone 7-0 and in September. He was making his eighth start of the month, which is just remarkable, but uh, he had also pitched 568 innings since the start of the 66 season. And, um, you know, that last start in September was the, was a, you know, a breaking point. And he suffered what an injury, an elbow injury that would have been a, a Tommy John surgery case, but at that time it didn't exist. And uh, he was pitching quite well. He very well might have led them to the pennant that day. And, you know, it just didn't work out that way. He went down and had to lead the game. And instead, of course, uh, the Red Sox win that game and go to the World Series where they lost to the Cardinals, that being the impossible dream year for the Red Sox. 1967, though, was about far, far more than baseball, not just in the Twin Cities, but the entire country. One thing that happened is that there was a lot of rioting, you know, including in Minnesota. Yes. Uh, what happened in Minnesota happened between the two huge events, one in Newark and one in Detroit, where dozens of buildings burned down, people died. Uh, black residents were just fed up with the lack of adequate housing, poor job choices. People were so poor they couldn't have moved out of their neighborhoods if they wanted to. And uh, all this tension built and uh, it all erupted in 67. And in Minnesota, it happened along a strip of uh, Plymouth Avenue in Minneapolis. And it never played out anywhere near as dangerously as Detroit or Newark, largely because... Uh, uh, the mayor, Mayor Naftalin at the time, played down the idea of bullying protesters or getting confrontational with them, and they mainly just kind of steered them and kept them from uh, doing more damage. And th- it was sort of a ploy that worked very successfully. What happened in Minneapolis lasted about three days. And, uh, you know, after a very rough first night, it never really escalated. So uh, Minneapolis was really spared from the worst of what happened in American cities that summer. At the same time, what happened was bad, I guess, for for lack of a, a better word. I think a lot of young listeners who know what has happened in the Twin Cities, you know, more recently, maybe aren't aware just how much happened, you know, so many decades ago. Yeah, yeah. And it's remarkable the similarities we're seeing from that era to this era. Some of the same issues are in play. Issues of police being brutal with black residents. You know, there again, a lot of just basic human rights and civil rights issues. And yeah, it's amazing how much they correlate as well. And consequently, because Plymouth Avenue didn't erupt on on the scale of Newark and Detroit, it's probably been lost on a lot of Minnesotans. 
Let's uh, stay non-baseball again for a few minutes, Tom. Anti-war protests were obviously a huge part of the 1960s. And as you point out in the book, Richard Nixon apparently worked behind the scenes to not only continue, but to escalate the Vietnam War. Yeah, in the end, that's how it played out. He was not president at the time. It was during the campaign in 68. And uh, LBJ, President Johnson, finally saw that, the you know, had some sense the war wasn't ever really going to turn the way that, you know, it had been projected by by American officials and was ready to, you know, kind of downscale the war. Peace talks were held and uh, Nixon being, you know, behind the scenes convinced uh, the South Vietnamese, the side that the Americans, uh, you know, were fighting on behalf, uh, convinced them that they weren't getting the best deal, that they could do better and that they should hold off on making a settlement. Now, this was completely unknown to anyone. LBJ suspected it, but he had no proof. And uh, consequently, it you know, took place. And Nixon was convinced if the war had ended, he had a better chance of losing. He thought his best chance of winning was having Vietnam continue as Americans became more disenchanted with the war. And uh, as it turned out, Nixon won. He did something that was illegal uh, as a private citizen. And, uh, you know, it gave him the White House. Before we jump back to baseball, Muhammad Ali, of course, was a big part of not only, well, the entire era, the entire generation, really, but also the Vietnam War. Yes, he was the first American who you know, was widely known, the first celebrity in American society who stood up and said, no, I will not go. And he had been encouraged by friends, colleagues, a lot of athletes like Bill Russell and James Brown, people who he had befriended over the years were telling him, you know, just go. Uh, when Joe Lewis had been drafted, the military found a non-military role for him, and it was likely Ali would have faced the same thing. He might have made public appearances on behalf of the military, you know, good chance he would have never gone to Vietnam, but he just based on his beliefs said, I will not follow that path. I don't believe in this war. You know, black citizens are asked to serve, but they don't share the same basic civil rights in this country. He just refused to, to go along and it, it was very costly to him. He immediately lost his uh, boxing licenses. He was forbidden to travel. He really had no way to earn income in his prime years. He did manage to return and become a champion, but he sacrificed the best years of his career and probably millions of dollars. Let's jump back to baseball. Rod Carew stole home seven times one year. And around that time, I think it was the same year, the Twins had multiple triple steals, not just double steals, but actually triple stolen bases. Those are pretty rare in the game of baseball. Yeah, well, that was Billy Martin for you. That all took place in 1969, the one year uh, Martin managed the Twins. And he was very much a running game kind of guy. And Frank Quillacy, who managed the, the Twins later and was a player on that team and also stole home that season, said Billy Martin would just pull the weirdest stunts to create runs. And they usually involved running. And uh, that year, Quillacy, Carew, and Cesar Tovar all stole home. And have actually, Tovar and Carew stole home in the same inning in one game. And, th and that particular day, Crew also stole three bases in an inning, which tied a major league record. And that was kind of how things went that year. Uh, most people could run freely. And even Harmon Killebrew stole eight bases that summer. And that is probably as remarkable as anything. Harmon Killebrew was uh, not exactly a speedster. He was usually on the back end of the steals, you know, a double steal, triple steal, which there were a few triple steals, as you mentioned. And uh, and at some point, Harmon expressed an interest in being the front guy on a steal. And sure enough, Martin sent him a time or two. And I believe Killebrew had two or three of those steals on his own, which is even more remarkable. 
And sticking with Billy Martin, uh, his relationship with uh, right-hander Dave Boswell was not particularly good. Yeah, well, it came down to one major incident. You know, I'm not so sure they were at odds all season, although I'm sure Boswell was a character and quite quirky and, you know, pulled stunts. And I'm sure he teed off Martin on occasion. But at one point late in the season, uh, Boswell had not done his running in the outfield. And Art Fowler, a pitching coach, busted him, told Martin. And then Martin confronted him in a bar. And Boswell was teed off and decided he was going to go confront Fowler. And they were in a bar together. Boswell had headed out of the bar. Bob Allison, who was also a uh, sort of a neutralizing guy for Boswell, stepped out and Boswell clocked him. And next thing you know, Martin was involved and the two, Boswell and Martin, went toe to toe and, you know, both had stitches. Boswell was beat up quite badly. There's also the notion that Martin had some help. Boswell was a much bigger man. But in the end, Boswell sat down. He, he was out for several weeks and it actually was a blessing for him. He pitched with chips on his elbow all summer and was really starting to wear down. And when he came back, he was just terrific. And he ended up being a 20-game winner for the only time in his career. Billy Martin was certainly not a large man, not as large as Boswell, but he had more than a few scraps. I think Billy knew how to handle himself. And that includes uh, mishandling himself with a lot of nightlife based on stories that I've heard. And I'm sure you have as well. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, Martin certainly had his uh, his run-ins with people, and although he may have had some help with Boswell, I, I'm sure he would have given Boswell a stiff challenge on his own, and I believe Martin had quite a few stitches put into his hand after that fight. You mentioned uh, pitching coach a few minutes ago. We should circle back to Jim Cott. You talked about how uh, Jim Cott was very unhappy when a pitching coach was fired earlier in his career. Yeah, that would be Johnny Sane, who many pitchers of that era thought was the best pitching coach on the planet, and so many people swore by him, and uh, the Twins hired him at the start of the 65 season, and uh, there were issues. Actually, Martin and Sane had their issues, and it got to a point where uh, uh, Martin wouldn't dress in the coach's room uh, after games, and he had nothing to do with Sane, and the issue was Sane wanted autonomy over the staff to a point where it upset managers. He had a very regimented program for them, and it, it was extremely successful. Uh, Jim Cott swore by him. Uh, Jim Bouton swore by him. Sane had been the pitching coach for the Yankees prior. Uh, he taught Denny McLean a sidearm slider that made him a two-time Cy Young Award winner after Sane left the Twins. And what happened was after the second season in Minnesota in 1966, Sam Mealy, the Twins manager, was more or less fed up with Sane and asked Cal Griffith, the owner, to fire Sane. And sure enough, Sane was let go. And it upset Cott to a point where he wanted to have, he wanted to write an editorial for the Minneapolis paper explaining how upset he was and why he thought Sane should, should still be on the staff. And as it played out, uh, he asked Harmon Killebrew to participate. Well, Harmon Killebrew didn't want to get involved. And so Cott went on his own and the Minneapolis paper did write his letter addressing why he thought Sane should never be fired. And, you know, I can't really disagree with Cott. I I just wonder if Sane had stayed on board, would the Twins have, you know, had better pitching down the stretch in the 60s? And, you know, maybe the Baltimore Orioles and the ALCS in 69 and 70, you know, maybe they would have been beaten. On the subject of Twins pitching, a name that a lot of young fans may not be familiar with is Dean Chance. Just how dominant was Chance in his prime? 
Well, uh, at one point, Mickey Mantle said that uh, it was at a time CBS owned the Yankees, but <laughs> Mantle said, well, actually, CBS doesn't own the Yankees. Dean Chance does. And he had a pivot in his delivery where he turned the, his back to the plate, and it was very unnerving to hitters, and, and he had very good stuff and a, a very electric fastball, and it was a very tough guy to hit. Uh, threw a number of one-hitters. Uh, finally threw a no-hitter with the Twins in 67 late in the season. And uh, he was just terrific with the Twins. They probably would not have competed in the 67 race because they started so poorly. But the only guy winning in the early part of the season was Chance. He went 7-0 and in the early going when the Twins were a 500 club. And, you know, the Twins rebounded and managed to play that last weekend in Boston. And it unlikely would not have happened without Dean Chance, who also threw his only no-hitter that season in August. Let's jump subjects uh, again, Tom. Let's go to other Minnesota sports. The Twin Cities got both an NHL and an NBA franchise in the 1960s. Yeah, that happened in 67. Both teams had drafts in this, around the same time that year. It was a fabulous time for Minnesotans, you know, a big hockey a big hockey center, and they'd had minor league teams as well. Minneapolis and St. Paul did. There were lots of fights in the stands in those days. People were so, so electric about their hockey. And uh, suddenly they had the North Stars, and they hired a guy, uh, Ren Blair, who staffed the first team. He had connections with the Canadians. They made a lot of trades with the Canadians. A lot of young, exciting players ended up on that team. And uh, yeah, it was a very exciting time. And then you also had the Minnesota Muskies, who didn't do as well at the gate, but uh, provided a lot of uh, you know excitement. In the second year, they had Connie Hawkins on their team, and actually that was the Minnesota Pipers. The ABA was such a mess financially. Uh, you know, the Muskies didn't last more than one season. So right, yeah, the ABA was of course led though by George Mikan, who is a you know a Minnesota legend. Yeah, that's another angle to it too. That's right. He had been a uh, a star with the Minneapolis Lakers before the Lakers moved to Minneapolis, and uh, he became the commissioner. He's the guy behind the uh, the colored ball. His sight wasn't good, and he thought for fans watching the game on TV, the you know the the red, white, and blue ball would play well. And I think he was a key player setting up the three point shot, uh, which the NBA eventually drafted. And uh, yeah, he was a Minnesota connection uh, for that league. And in fact, after the Minnesota teams left, Mikan was the only connection to the league, but he did retire soon after. So the ABA brought in a red, white, and blue ball. Another color is pretty big in Minnesota sports lore, which is the Purple People Eaters. Ah, yes, yes. Well, the Vikings, uh, the Vikings provided some uh, relief for, for Twins fans, uh, well, and maybe even more so for the owner, Calvin Griffith, who fired Martin after the 1969 season. And, you know, normally baseball in those days just disappeared when the season ended. But with Martin being fired, there was such an uproar. He was burned in effigy on the University of Minnesota campus. The story just lived on that all whole winter. But but luckily for Griffith, uh, uh, the Vikings went to their first Super Bowl that year. And, you know, they'd were a very dominant team. I think they led they led the NFL in most points per game and the least points allowed per game. And that second stat was, you know, a lot to do with the purple people leaders. Carl Eller, Alan Page, Jim Marshall, and uh, is it Gary Larson, I believe, is the fourth uh, front lineman. And they just were uh, so tough on quarterbacks all season that year and earned that nickname with, with a great season. And they couldn't quite uh, get over the top. You know, the Super Bowl and uh, Minnesota just don't go so well. I'm actually a Packers fan, so 
Um, <laughs> I, I don't I, mind saying that. <laughs> well, then I have to laugh because, you know, the, I have much the same attitude about the Packers, of course, that you might have about the Vikings. And uh, yeah, the Vikings, unfortunately, that year, um, Bud Grant was kind of a smash mouth, straight ahead kind of guy. And uh, they were heavily favored in that Super Bowl. But uh, Hank Stram ran very complex defensive and offensive uh formations and the, the Vikes just couldn't handle uh, you know what Stram and the the Chiefs threw at them uh, the Kansas City Chiefs pretty much rolled over the Vikings in that game and one other you know non-baseball thing before we circle back to to baseball the North Stars actually had a player lose his life you know he was injured in a game uh, I have to admit that I was not aware of that yeah, that was Bill Masterton, a young guy who, well, if it wouldn't have been for expansion, would have never made the NHL. But uh, when the NHL expanded, he was actually working for, um, I believe, Honeywell, one of the main one of the main companies involved in uh, the NASA programs to go to the moon. And uh, he pretty much was about ready to walk away from from hockey. He had uh, he had been on the national team around that time in Canada, and, but was ready to write off hockey. And he came back. Uh, the North Stars convinced him to come play. He was the first player they signed, and uh, about midway through that first season, it just was the victim of a vicious check. It was clean. Uh, he was on his way down, got hit, hit the ice hard, and uh, suffered a massive head injury and um, died within a couple of days, unfortunately. And it was just something that was extremely unfortunate. The NHL didn't like players wearing helmets, and uh, that's kind of around the time more and more players began wearing them, Stan Makita being among the first. And the NHL does uh, present a Bill Masterton Award every year, I believe, a sportsmanship award. So Masterton's spirit still lives on in the NHL. And I understand from the book that a few players wanted to start wearing helmets immediately after that and were actually ostracized because it was not considered, quote unquote, manly within the game of hockey. Yeah, that's more or less true. I guess most teams more or less took that position. Andre Boudria was, was one of those players. He was a draft he was drafted in that expansion draft and was there the first year or so and uh he donned the helmet and um you know the word was that the franchise didn't like it and he was traded shortly after even though he was among the leading scorers on the team in the first year so there was some foolishness happening in in the 60s for sure and hmm. i did i did learn of that from the book i learned of an odd oddity in baseball from that book Brent Allier, who was an outfielder for some of the decade, actually was involved in what I believe was a two-seven-six-seven putout. You know, can you <laughs> tell people just what happened? Yes, yes. Um, I believe Earl Wilson. Uh, I guess this would have been against Detroit. I believe. Yes, it was against Detroit, and Earl Wilson struck out to end an inning, and uh, the ball got rolled back to the plate. And one of the Tiger coaches told Wilson the ball hit the ground first, and you know you could you could you could run you know as on a third strike if the ball you know catcher didn't catch it cleanly and and as the Twins were coming in from the field, Earl Wilson starts sprinting around the bases, and uh, as it turns out, Allier being in I believe left field came in and suddenly became aware of the play before most of the Twins players were. And I believe it was him and uh, the, the shortstop, Cardenas. Um, Leo Cardenas became involved, and Allier and Cardenas tossed a couple balls between them and trapped Wilson between home and third and uh, tagged him out. So uh, it was a pretty bizarre play. 
No, certainly one of the, the most bizarre plays that I have heard of. And A.J. Pruszynski would not have been born yet either <laughs> with the, the ball in the dirt. <laughs> yeah, there you go. We, we have uh, time for a few more, Tom. I think I should ask you about Mudcat Grant, who was a big part of the Twins. Yeah, Mudcat Grant uh, was acquired in 64, came over in a trade with Cleveland, and uh, quickly became their ace. And uh, he benefited from Sane as well. Sane taught him a kind of what I think Mudcat called a fast curve, you know, a little bit harder thrown than a typical curveball with maybe a little less break. And uh, it became a big pitch for him. And uh, like many pitchers like Bounton and Earl Wilson, a number of others, had his only 20-win season under under Johnny Sane, and he was just magnificent that year. Him and Camilo Pasquale were sort of joint uh, aces that year. Neither one lost a game until early to mid-June and were terrific. And unfortunately, Camilo Pasquale suffered an injury and sat out a good chunk of the season. But Grant kept rolling and won 21 games and led the league with six shutouts and tossed a one-hitter to clinch a tie for the uh, for the for the uh, AL pennant in late September, and then was terrific also in the World Series and won a huge game six and hit a two or three run homer in that game to seal it, and uh, just had a terrific season with the Twins and a delightful guy. I suspect you've talked to him as well. Just a great storyteller and a wonderful man. Uh, it's one of the Twins I just was very sad to see pass away. You know, in the last year or two. And Pasquale, of course, had one of the great curveballs of his generation. Both he and Mudcat had a battery mate, who I think is one of the most underrated catchers in baseball history. Absolutely. Yes, Earl Batty, uh, uh, a remarkable man. Unfortunately, I never did get to talk to him. He passed away in the course of uh, uh, when I started writing these projects. I was in, in the Oliva Project and wanted to talk to him, and uh, he was dying of cancer at the time. But, yeah, and he got overshadowed. Um, you know, you play in the playing the shadow of Killebrew and Oliva and Bob Allison, and he really was one of the better hitting catchers in the game at that time. But what was even more remarkable you know, were qualities that you don't see stats for, and that was his catching. They, the Twins never used to pitch out. He had such a terrific arm and a great release that he was great throwing out base runners. He was great at calling games, and something that stands out is he learned Spanish, and this was something that helped him working with Pasquale, Pedro Ramos, and a number of other uh, Cuban players that were were, uh, on the Twins at that time, and he was a great guy in the clubhouse. Uh, there were card games in the clubhouse, and he was the guy that would frequently invite the Cuban players to be part of it. A wonderful man. I, he had quite a career after baseball, and I sure wish I could have talked to him. One more player, Tom, that we should touch on is somebody who a lot of young fans also don't know well. He came up very, very often in the book when you were talking about big wins that the Twins had down the stretch in certain seasons, and that is Cesar Tovar, the man who famously played all nine positions in a game. Yes, yes. Well, you know, early in his career with the Twins, he came over in a trade, I believe, in 64-5. It would have been before the 65 season because he played opening day. But he was mostly known for his versatility. You could play him almost anywhere. And that did lead to that 1968 game where he played all nine positions, started out on the mound, actually struck out Reggie Jackson in the game. Uh, Tony Olivas said he threw nothing but garbage, but he uh, he used a triple, quadruple wind-up occasionally to kind of throw people's timing off and worked his way around the diamond. 
But after that season, Billy Martin in 69 really plugged into him, and uh, he he landed in center field permanently, and for 69, 70, 71, in those three years combined, he led all American League players and runs scored, and he was a key guy in those 69, 70 teams that, that you know, won the AL West. Uh, great leadoff guy, got on base, took the next base. Uh, Martin loved him. Martin actually used him to sort of... Uh, uh, calm players when they you know weren't happy. Apparently, he had great rapport with teammates. Rod Carew was kind of a temperamental guy at that in those early days, and if uh, Rod needed a little boost, he, Billy Martin would send Cesar to talk to him. And uh, you know, he was just a, a remarkable player, very underrated, I think, as well. And uh, interestingly, in '69, um, you know, a team with Killebrew and Oliva and all this power, Tovar in, in the last in September in '69 hit game-winning homers and in extra innings twice against Oakland, the, the team's primary competitor. And Cesar helped seal that deal that year. And we have hardly spoken at all about Carew or Oliva, and maybe even not about Killebrew. I almost hate to ask you about any of those players specifically because they would probably be 20-minute conversations each because they are so <laughs> iconic. Mm-hmm. But I do want to ask you uh, about a few other iconic things that actually aren't baseball. The Beatles, I think you mentioned briefly, and Woodstock, the moon landing. Those, again, the 1960s are just so remarkable. I think when people look back, they think, wow, those actually happened within the same decade. It is pretty remarkable. And of course, President Kennedy in the early 60s made a commitment to go to the moon before the decade ended. And uh, after he was assassinated, uh, political leaders continued to carry on that dream. And it is remarkable it happened. You know, Apollo 1 actually burned on the on the launch pad a couple of years before the moon landing, and it seemed like it would set the program back. And yet they still managed to, you know, put men on the moon in July of 69. So, yeah, and then you just had music changing so dramatically and, you know, a war going on that people didn't understand. And, and the civil rights, you know, movement reaching a peak in, in the 60s. It is hard to comprehend now, I look back, and to think all that happened in about a, you know, eight, ten year span. It's, it is really remarkable. One other thing, Tom, I learned in the book, I can mention Otis Redding, shortly after he recorded The Dock of the Bay, a song I'm, I'm sure everybody knows, actually died in a plane crash before it was ever released, which yeah, another great little tidbit in a book that is just full of great information. Yeah, it is sad. Uh, you know, in fact, I'm not even sure they had really finished the recording process. Uh, you know, he whistles kind of a last verse in the end, and uh, I think that was part of an earlier cut. And um, yeah, he died in a plane crash, jumping between cities for concert appearances. And Otis was a, still a young man, but he'd been recording since his teen years. He'd been around for pretty much about a decade at that point when that plane crash happened, and he missed out on his big hit. It was clearly the biggest hit he ever had, and he didn't live to see it, sadly. No, he missed out on his big hit just as the uh, Twins missed out on a World Series title in the 60s. And on that, I guess, sad note, I guess we can close. Tom, we could talk for another hour about things that I learned in the book. But as we don't have time, I will thank you once again for being a guest on Fangrass Audio. Well, I'm so glad you enjoyed the book. And thank you so much for hosting me. I've enjoyed it very much. And thanks, everybody, for listening to Fangrass Audio. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Tom Henninger for joining us, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the program, consider sharing it with a pal or two. It helps us out.
Don't forget to check out that Fangraphs.com shop and get yourself a membership if you don't have one. And I also recommend signing up for the Fangraphs newsletter. It's the best way to keep up on everything that is going on at the site, free to your inbox every weekday. Have a good weekend, and we'll talk to you soon.